Good afternoon. Welcome to this session of the Center for the Economics of the Internet here at the Hudson Institute. My name is Harold Furch Scott Roth, and I'll be your moderator today. We're very pleased to have with us today Commissioner Michael O'Reilly of the Federal Communications Commission. Uh, Commissioner O'Reilly has had a long and distinguished career on Capitol Hill. Uh, he has served in a senior staff role for the better part of the past three decades, which is, uh, I think, an extraordinary accomplishment in and of itself. And as punishment for the many sins of being a senior congressional staffer, uh, Commissioner O'Reilly was nominated to the Federal Communications Commission a few years ago, and he has served with great distinction on the commission and uh, uh, has always brought a great deal of uh, wit and optimism and charm to his office at the commission. Uh, he writes a, a wonderful blog, which is posted at the commission website with commentary on various matters before the commission and in general. Uh, and it's our great honor to have Commissioner O'Reilly with us today. He's going to offer some comments uh, about, uh, I believe, Chevron deference and administrative process. And uh, then I'm going to ask a few questions, and then we'll open it up to the broader audience for questions. Uh, so Commissioner O'Reilly, thank you so much. Well, thank you such a warm introduction. I'm much appreciated. I want to start by extending my deepest thanks to the Hudson Institute for having me, and a special note of thanks to former Commissioner Furchcott Roth for allowing me to return to discuss important matters before the Federal Communications Commission. This setting will always be special to me because it is actually the first speech that I gave was before Hudson nearly three years ago. Given the prominence of this venue and Hudson Institute's legacy of addressing more substantive issues, I thought it would be appropriate to discuss a topic often not addressed by FCC commissioners certain tenets of judicial review of FCC items. Traditionally, many within the legislative and, and administrative branches of government tend to shy away from discussing particular outcomes of court cases or the collective approach of judicial review, perhaps hoping that the lack of criticism or comments will prevent a bad outcome in the next case. They avoid discussing altogether or temper their review of instances where courts have misapplied the law or pursued a line of reasoning devoid of logic or common sense. Having witnessed a number of bad decisions recently, however, I have less compulsion to keep mum about the judicial branch, although I hope so, I hope the following does so in a relatively respectful way. Additionally, I would argue that the lack of review or analysis of decisions generally deemed to be out of the mainstream, even by those that support the outcome, does a disservice to the American people and the court system as a whole. To do this, I will use court review of the Commission's net neutrality rules as a basis for examination. From the outset, let me state that I do not intend in the next few moments to relitigate the particulars of the underlying policy debate surrounding the issue. My views on the subject are well known, and debating the concepts here would likely send us off into difficult tangents of the theoretical versus the practical. Instead, I suggest that court review of the Commission's work both lacked appropriate rigor necessary for the conclusion reached and established a host of dreadful precedents that will haunt communication policy and administrative law 
for years to come. With that understanding, let's delve into the specifics. For decades, the framework for such court review of FCC matters has been governed by doctrine resulting from the Supreme Court's Chevron decision. Under the precedent, if Congress has directly spoken to a precise question at issue and the intent of Congress is clear, then the court and agency must effectuate it. If, however, the statute is silent or ambiguous, then the court must decide whether the agency's answer is based on a permissible construction of the statute and defer any reasonable interpretation. Yet even where a provision is truly ambiguous and there are still circumstances where deference is not owed and should be viewed skeptically. Indeed, given the expansive reach of the modern administrative state, recent Supreme Court decisions have re-emphasized certain limits on Chevron. For instance, the courts stated that when an agency claims to discover in a long exigent statute an unheralded power to regulate a significant portion of the American economy, we typically greet its announcement with a measure of skepticism. The court also made clear that an agency has no power to tailor legislation to bureaucratic policy goals by rewriting unambiguous statutory terms. This year, the Supreme Court cautioned that Chevron deference is not warranted where the regulation is procedurally defective. The court explained that one of the basic procedural requirements of administrative rulemaking is that an agency must give adequate reasons for its decisions. Specifically, the agency must examine the relevant data and articulate a satisfactory explanation for its actions, including a rational connection between the facts found and the case made. By clarifying that an arbitrary and capricious regulation receives no deference, the court drew a closer connection between Chevron and the Administrative Procedure Act. To receive deference, the, agency, the agency's conclusions must be a product of a reasoned decision-making process. Or to paraphrase one scholar, the court cannot simply rely on the reasons proffered by an agency. It must inquire whether the reasons are reasonable. While Supreme Court decisions have provided avenues to check agency power grabs, the DC Circuit, which hears many key disputes regarding the FCC, has provided the agency an excessive level of deference to date. Case in point is the previously mentioned net neutrality decision, in which, in which a divided panel afforded the agency utmost deference to an order that least deserved it, particularly from an APA perspective. As, just, as ju Judge Williams detailed in his dissenting opinion, and Commissioner Pai and I explained in our dissenting statements, the net neutrality order did not comply with the APA on numerous counts. To start, the FCC did not provide a reasoned explanation to justify several key decisions. In reclassifying broadband as a telecommunications service, the order attempted to rely on changed facts and a new rationale. It focused on how providers offer and advertise broadband, as well as consumers, use, consumers perceive and use it, but fail to demonstrate how this is any different than when the commission previously argued that broadband should be classified as an information service. The order likewise subjected mobile broadband to common carrier retreatment without adequately explaining its rationale for the radical departure from longstanding definitions and precedent beyond the Commission's desire to regulate such a successful and ubiquitous service. For instance, 
to accomplish reclassification. The commission literally overnight changed the definition of interconnected with public switched network from one where subscribers must be able to communicate to and receive communications from all other users via the traditional telephone network to another where a substantial portion of the public must be able to communicate via a single network comprised of public IP addresses and telephone numbers. Much different. When making these monumental changes, the order also failed to take into account the serious reliance interests of providers who had invested $800 billion in broadband based on the FCC's prior classification. In earlier decisions, the FCC took the position that classification of broadband directly affects investment. And there was plenty of record evidence that continued to back these statements. Nonetheless, the net neutrality order baldly claimed that, these, that the any impact would be indirect at best. Another example was the FCC's failure, as Judge Williams highlighted, to reconcile and justify its combined reclassification forbearance decision, including by conducting a market power analysis. The order made many market power-like statements, expressing concerns that ISPs are gatekeepers and that consumers face high switching costs in order to impose its net neutrality rules. But it did so without going through any of the fact-gathering or analysis needed to sustain such claims. And then it turned on a dime and seemed to assume that there is enough competition to justify broad forbearance. Judge Williams found this strategic ambiguity to be arbitrary and capricious. In other instances where the FCC changed course, it provided even less explanation. For example, in a few footnotes, the order contains statements like, to the extent our prior precedents might suggest otherwise, we disavow such an interpretation in this context. That's it. The FCC did not even take the time to explain what those other precedents or interpretations were or why this context is any different. I expect it would have reached the same outcome had it done so, but it did not even bother to do the work. The FCC also selectively ignored the record. Throughout the proceeding, we were constantly lectured that some four million commenters supposedly supported net neutrality, a dubious number at best. However, the FCC failed to consider arguments and data presented by commenters that expressed opposition to the FCC's desired outcome. Gone are the days when the FCC orders would systematically raise and rebut challenges in the record. Now it's common to see opposing arguments relegated to footnotes that begin with a but see and consist of a string site with little to no explanation of what cases cited stand for or why they're being summarily dismissed. It is galling to see thousands of pages of serious economic and legal analysis reduced to a passing reference. Judge Williams stressed this and other analytical flaws in his case study on paid prioritization. He noted that the, other, that the order cited four articles that did not support the claimed conclusions, failed to respond to criticisms and alternatives posed in the record, pointing to several substantive comments that were utterly ignored, and it was contradictory in its treatment of different forms of paid prioritization. In short, he found that the FCC's opinion writing staff was asleep at the switch. Asleep at the switch. Turning to the APA's notice and comment rules, an NPRM must provide sufficient factual detail and rationale for the rule to permit interested parties to comment meaningfully. 
Well, the final rule does not need to be the one proposed in the NPRM. It needs to be a logical outgrowth of the notice, meaning that the notice has to expressly ask for comments on a particular issue or otherwise make clear that the agency is contemplating a particular change. Well, some may think that this is a mere procedural annoyance. The APA's notice provisions ensure that agency regulations are tested via exposure to diverse public comment, ensure fairness to affected parties, and provide stakeholders with the opportunity to make their case in opposition to a rule. Not only should an agency take this responsibility seriously, but the courts must vehemently enforce these requirements instead of whimsically deferring to an agency's ex post facto explanations for why interested parties should have known what's at stake. Unfortunately, this is what happened in net neutrality, where the court went out of its way to explain the item's deficiencies, oh, to explain uh, away the item's deficiencies. This is not easy given the drastic about face in this proceeding. Here, the court managed to find that the APA's notice and comment requirements were met in each and every case. To do so, the court cherry-picked select language in some instances and resorted to illogical reasoning in others. To accomplish the Herculean task of finding that there was notice and comment for broadband reclassification generally, the court focused on one sentence out of a 100-page NPRM to justify that interested parties had notice. However, the court ignores that the Commission's specific inquiry was on the nature and the extent of the Commission's authority to adopt open internet rules relying on Title II. Basically, the court found that expansion of Title II to create a modern Title II tailored for the 21st century is a logical outgrowth of a proceeding about implementing net neutrality rules under Section 706. But the DC Circuit previously stated that the logical outgrowth does not extend to a finer rule that is a brand new rule, since something is not a logical outgrowth of nothing, nor does it apply where interested parties would have to divine the agency's unspoken thoughts, because the final rule was surprisingly distant from the proposed rule. There are several more instances where the item was not teed up in the notice, but the court came up with a tortured explanation for why there was. Each of these examples does not comply with the APA because similar to the inquiry into reclassification generally, the commission does not make its views known to the public in a concrete and focused form and did not clearly state the objective of the rulemaking. For instance, according to the court, stakeholders knew that they needed to comment on the rationale for reclassification, changes in consumer perception because it was discussed not in the NPRM but in the Supreme Court's Brand X decision over 10 years ago. Similarly, the NPRM did not mention anything about applying Title II to interconnection arrangements. To find notice, the court looks to the tentative conclusion that the net neutrality rules should not apply to interconnection. And a follow-up question about the possibly, about possibly rethinking this conclusion. This was apparently fair warning that interconnection could be regulated under Title II. This despite the very fact that even the chairman previously admitted that interconnection should be handled separately. The court also seems to recognize the notice deficiencies for the reclassification of mobile broadband and FCC's change in definitions I previously mentioned. But not a worry. Because one party commented on these definitions, another 
responded in reply comments that the issue was beyond the scope of the rulemaking, and others filed ex partes very late in the proceeding. The court found that there was actual notice of the final rules, so there was no harm to the parties. Apparently, it is no longer necessary for the commission to give notice of rule changes when commenters can solely raise the issue in its comments, ex partes, or letters. It appears that if there is any discussion in the record whatsoever, then there is notice. And a series of vague questions were apparently sufficient to find that people were on notice that the general conduct standard could be adopted. But these questions, such as whether a different rule is needed to govern broadband providers' practices, do not meet the requirements that an agency describe the range of alternatives being considered with reasonable specificity. It should be telling that the DC Circuit's latest interpretation of what is sufficient notice, as evident by this decision, varies greatly from other circuit courts. For instance, the Third Circuit applies a far more stringent standard, as seen in the Council Tree and Prometheus cases, than the DC Circuit did in this one. The Third Circuit has held implied notice is insufficient unless all interested parties would reasonably be expected to perceive the implication and that two general and open-ended questions were not sufficient to have fairly apprised the public of the commission's intention. The Second Circuit also found in a case involving the FCC that similarly vague questions were not adequate to provide notice. So there you have it, a court that went out of its way to bless an item full of holes and problems, an item not consistent with the requirements of the APA, and an item that likely wouldn't be sufficient under review by another court. Now, I realize that many will describe my words as merely being sour grapes. As Chairman Wheeler has said, the refuge for not liking the decision is to complain about process. Others may agree that sound practices were ignored, but that it is acceptable because achieving the desired outcome was of paramount concern. I'm reminded of a few lines in the book, Atlas Shrugged. What if we did skip some technicalities? It was for good purpose. For those of you who believe this scenario, I won't be able to change your minds. But for some of you, even those that agree with the outcome, and those of us who once believed in the FCC as an institution, there is a sense of dread, or should be. Mark my words that the court's cursory review in this instance set precedent they'll be used again. It is just a matter of time before a future commission follows the path outlined by this court. In effect, logical reasoning, evidence-based conclusions, adherence to an item's record, and of course, providing requisite notice of the decision in a proceeding are no longer required to survive judicial review. Unless undone by the Supreme Court or Congress, the DC Circuit has granted virtually limitless authority to the commission. That should worry everyone in this room and those watching online. Think about it this way. Today's Tom Wheeler could be tomorrow's next Barry Goldwater. Just imagine what someone could do using the court's path with a different-minded agenda. So I want to thank you so much for your attentiveness, and I look forward to any questions that Harold may have or the audience does as well. Thank you very much. Commissioner, 
thank you for those uh, extraordinarily thoughtful comments. Uh, we're very honored to have you uh, give such uh, comments here at Hudson. Um, I want to follow up on that very last remark, uh, which is uh, a few months from now, or maybe four years and a few months from now, there may be a different uh, chairman, maybe someone with views similar to uh, a Commissioner O'Reilly, uh, maybe a Chairman O'Reilly. Um, and uh, is the DC Circuit precedent in the network neutrality case, is this uh, an invitation for a future commission to just simply um, either unravel uh, the network neutrality order uh, without a lot of public notice? Or alternatively, if we have, a, if Chairman Wheeler stays in office or someone similarly minded, uh, can we expect uh, similar shortcuts on, uh, uh, on administrative process on such matters as privacy or uh, special access or set-top boxes or anything else that might be before the commission? So I would make the case, and I've argued consistently at the commission, that uh, the shortcuts evident in the net neutrality decision that the court has blessed um, are going to be repeated. I highlighted that in my speech. They're going to be repeated by a future commission. Uh, and they can be for many different purposes. They can be a totally drastic different approach by a, by a more right-minded um, thinking uh, commissioner or chairman. Or it may be an extension of the current chairman wheelers. But, but I think you mentioned the, the word perfectly there, and that is shortcuts. It is, it is, you know, and it's the, the ends justify the means approach. Uh, and if we can skip through the procedural steps as fast as possible because they're uh, in the way or unnecessary for the goals that they, they like to achieve, um, I believe we're all going to be uh, in a, worse for it. Uh, we don't uh, come out with the best outcome. Um, and it is harmful to overall policy uh, going forward. And if you think about it, and I was tr trying to, to outline a scenario where if we do have a more conservative commission at some point in the future, which is very likely at some time, um, there are so many differences, not just net neutrality that can be um, overturned or changed um, or altered. It is every facet of the commission um, activities that, that are now, um, now being regulated. And you can think of whole, whole uh, sectors that can, the, the regulation can be removed in, you know, in, a, in, a, in a weekend. Uh, things that, that, that you've, you, you struggled um, mightily at the commission and, and argued against some of the decisions that have been made can, can be completely wiped off the books um, in, in a short amount of time period. And that, that to me, is not what, what the commission is about. Um, and, and for someone who believed in the commission as an institution, uh, the procedural flaws in this um, current go-around are, are very problematic. And what the court has done has, has shown a path um, for the next commission or the next two commissions to, uh, to follow. Uh, could you comment on any other proceedings that uh, have already happened at the commission or that may be ongoing at the commission where you've seen uh, similar procedural shortcuts? Well, the difficulty is it's not uncommon to be at least one per uh, meeting item where we have uh, the process being uh, abused. 
Um, and you see it from, you know, you see it in the items themselves where they just are not uh, sufficiently cooked. And staff was asked to write something. And the staff does a wonderful job. I don't mean to, to have any criticism of the staff who are asked to do certain things and they carry out um, the, the mission that they are given. But you see where the, you know, if you're asking to, to write something uh, in a short amount of period, a short amount of time, that you're going to skip a number of steps. Um, and then they do, and you see the items, and they're 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 completely uh, devoid, as is, is highlighted in the net neutrality, devoid of a response to just things that are raised in the record. We don't even bother to do the, you know, this party raised this particular issue, um, that we disagree with that for this reasons why it doesn't apply in this case, and that's supposed to be the job of the. Uh, uh, the, the regulatory body is supposed to go through under the APA. So um, it, is, it is a nearly um, monthly occurrence where the procedures um, are being ignored and, and we'll pay the cost in the long term. There are news accounts about uh, privacy proceeding at the commission, um, a proceeding that uh, touches not just on FCC jurisdiction, but potentially on Federal Trade Commission jurisdiction. Um, how does the commission go about looking at the issue of privacy? Um, I'll stop the question there. How does okay. the commission go about looking at privacy, and how do you think the commission should be looking at privacy? Well, I um, should be careful here, because we have an item before us uh, that's going to be considered later this month. but. Uh, on the issue of privacy uh, and, and some security. Um, but I, I'll say this because I've made these comments before, and, and so they're, they're not new. I start with the uh, main concern of mine with the item, with the approach that the commission has taken from the NPRM. We, we do not have sufficient expertise or resources to understand the issue of privacy. It has been something that has been in very narrow CP&I dis discussion uh, and not much addressed in, in a number of years. So there are very few, when you think about the number of people at the commission, I always like to say, just give or take 1,500 people at the commission. The number of people working on privacy, less than two handfuls. That's, that's it. You compare that to what's happening at the FTC or anywhere else that has, has similar statutes. Two, I don't think we have a sufficient grasp of how privacy is done throughout the federal government. Not only on the federal government side, but on the, on the, on the, on the commercial side, how it's being handled in a number of different other segments. They just haven't had time. And so your question, how should the commission approach it? It should, in my opinion, should take a much more um, broader uh, time period to look at the issue. And that's assuming that we should do something. We have to start with the premise that something's broken and it needs to be repaired. Um, or addressed um, to 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 uh, you know resolve uh, some consumer harm. Uh, if you can get past those thresholds, then it is what is it we want to do? And it should take quite a long time to figure out what is the right answer. Do all imaginations. Look at the alternatives. Uh, examine what's the best policy uh, uh, outcome for the American people. Um, that's sadly where I, I don't know that we're going to be able to do that uh, in this go around. Uh, and will be something, in my opinion, that we're going to have to um, likely um, address in future commissions, um, probably with different commissioners and chairmen. Related to that, there uh, hardly a day goes by that there aren't news articles about uh, breaches of privacy, breaches of security, of emails, of uh, 
government databases uh, that uh, uh, have a very direct effect on uh, the lives of, of all Americans. Um, and yet I, I have to wonder whether uh, the efforts of the commission, certainly the commission by itself, uh, can really do anything on privacy or security uh, when uh, it seems that uh, there are countless entities around the world that uh, can, can look at our emails and uh, delve into the deepest depths of federal databases. Well, your, your question aids and your, your comment is, is well taken. It, I always have to start from the most basic premise. Did Congress assign this job to the commission? And where are the statutory provisions? And what do they exactly say? And so I've had difficulty in, in, in reaching uh, the conclusion that Congress has provided the commission with authority over security. Because we have, because it has, in many other instances, given it to other agencies. You look at where the authorizing language has gone, uh, the bills that are being considered in Congress, and you see where the money's going. Um, and it's Homeland Security, and some is at, at NSI, and there's multiple different pockets that look at these different issues. The executive branch as well um, has a number of, of, of items that address who's responsible for what, and who's taking the lead, and what the role is. And it, in none of those instances, you know, is the FCC even part of the discussion? It may be a footnote in some, some instances, but it's barely even part of the imagination. So I'm troubled that we were heading down this direction, certainly by ourselves and outside of this other extensive work being done. But the heart of your question is, what do we do on privacy and security? Um, on security, you know, there's two parts. There is the protection of government data, Right, the, 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 all of the people who have worked for the federal government and interact with the federal government in one form or another. And that seems to be very problematically um, protected. Um, no matter what steps they take, they seem to find that, that we're getting more announcements of hacks um, and information being divulged. Um, my information, all the information that I've um, had, to, uh, had to provide for purposes of confirmation is probably sitting in a database uh, three quarters around the world. Um, in one form or another. So I've had to live with that fact, and I, I'd find that if I were you know, in Congress, which I'm not, if I were, that's where I'd spend a considerable amount of time is on the government protection of data. But on the, pri on the, on the commercial side, we have to figure out, you know, acknowledge the fact, and the, I think the FTC has done this very well, you have to acknowledge the fact that nothing is going to be 100% secure. There are so many situations um, in, in life where you know, there is going to be a faulty circumstance. You know, there is going to be a hack in almost every um, major company. They are facing, you know, a number, of, you know, hundreds, thousands of attacks on a daily basis, um, and they have to try and protect their network as best as possible. It's not surprising that, of, you know, at some instances that they will be broken into. The real question is, what do you do about it? Um, and and did you have a, you know, did you, you know, thoughtfully try and prevent? of the circumstance from happening. And that's where I think the FCC you know, has a, has a, is a reasonable security. It is that, is that level, did you do the best you, you know, to, to the extent you can using proper techniques, updating your information, having sufficient staff in, in place to address the potential exposure uh, going forward? Uh, one of the things we, all, we also looked at in my, my previous job was how do you deal with the liability and cost issue? Uh, and do you, does the security get to a point where it becomes something of an insurance component? Do you, do you, and that helps certainly address the market 
uh, failure, if there is one, um, for, for, the, for, the, for the foreseeable future. But Congress has not spoken to this issue uh, you know, sufficiently, in my opinion, and certainly hasn't asked the FCC to do this um, for the entire, on, on behalf of the entire government. It is a very interesting and complex, complex subject matter. It's not something you can do um, in a couple months um, because you think you have a mandate on a statute that misinterpreted um, by the commission and now being blessed by the court on net neutrality. I mean, it's a, it, you know, the commission's own uh, proceeding is uh, in effect its own doing, right? Because it reclassified, it then now has to address this, this scenario. Um, it's somehow it's blaming that we have to do this and uh, it's its own doing in my opinion. One more question and I'll open it up to the audience. Sure. Uh, uh, BDS special access, uh, is the commission really going to, for the first time in over 20 years, get back in the business of uh, rate making? Is that, uh, is that where the commission is headed? And well, I don't mean to ask no, anything okay. about that. That's okay. No, I would say um, two parts. The, the, the disclaimer one, that we do have an item before us, I want to be careful. Um, and two, just to clarify, as I've said before, it will always be special access to me. To anyone who wants to uh, try and uh, market it as BDS uh, for purposes of making themselves feel better, so be it. But it's special access. Um, according to the, the commission, they put out a fact sheet on this, a couple page fact sheet on this. They intend to uh, impose rate regulation on some um, what most people would say are legacy old uh, slower services. What, um, what that finally looks like, I couldn't tell you at this moment. It, it does seem that we're headed down rate regulation path uh, where we haven't been in a, in a long while. Uh, that, that is you know, certainly uh, problematic on multiple levels, um, but we'll just have to see where this how this materially plays out. Well, I could ask questions all day, and that would not be fair to either you or the audience. So I'm going to open it up to the audience for questions. Uh, there will be a microphone passed around. Please identify yourself uh, both for Commissioner O'Reilly and for our online audience. And for our online audience, for individuals who have questions, it's at Hudson Institute. Submit your questions that way. Thank you. Uh, the gentleman uh, with the blue necktie. Hi, Carl Golovin. Concerning FCC docket 13-213, Mr. Fershgott Roth, I believe you've corresponded with the commission on behalf of Global Star. Uh, it's a TLPS, uh, Terrestrial Low Power Service proceeding. And Commissioner O'Reilly, I believe you've um, uh, been continuing to decide your, your vote in the matter. Uh, I speak as an investor, a very interested in Global Star. I think they're potentially tremendous service uh, being offered. What are the reasons from each of your points of view? Uh, what still needs to be considered? Uh, is it time for a vote in favor of TLPS? This is an item before the commission. I, I'm not sure it's proper to have a public discussion I, I, I about it. Say something. I, I will say broadly, um, it is an item before us. But I, I'm um, continuing to examine the issues. And people will continue to come in and meet with me and my staff and, and raise uh, issues on both sides of the matter. We're trying to make the most thoughtful uh, decision we possibly can. You know, people have uh, painted me as the um, as the, the decision maker here, given how things have played out per se in the press. Um, uh, I can't comment on that too much to say, that, but I'm trying to make the best decision that I can um, based on the material that's before me. 
Um, I try to do the job as, um, as I think that you would if you were in my seat, as the rest of the American people are in my seat. I try to you know, thoughtfully look at all the information, listen to anyone who has concerns or thoughts or pro, con, listen to everything I possibly can, uh, and then make a decision. In terms of the timing, there are um, a number of people still coming in and making arguments and then also looking at the scope of, 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 of the offering that's, that's being before us. So I, I hope to make a decision soon. I have no timeline to, to present to you, uh, but I, I try to do the job as, as you would, is at least my opinion. Uh, the gentleman uh, there, yes. My name is Andy Judah. I work for the different organizations from the press, Huffington Post and other ones. I, I want to ask you a question that's not technical. Uh, we are finishing the Obama uh, government probably in four months, and I want you, if you can give me an idea or give us an idea, how much developments we had in the communications during the last, the last years in the Obama tenure. For example, if you can tell us how many people changed in internet from uh, telephone to DSL, and how is the situation today? How many people uh, moved to cable and, and to, to satellite, or how is the situation? Do you see that this situation improved during the last year? How many people have smartphones in the US and do uh, normal transaction operations in, the, in their smartphones for, I don't know, banking or wherever. Uh, how is the approach in the US and how you see it compared to maybe other countries or something like that? Sure. So I should start, and I think Harold kind of pointed this out at the beginning. I've only been at the commission for less than three years. So when we're talking about eight years, there's a lot of the administration that, that I wasn't part of, and we are not part of the administration. We are an independent agency that's separate uh, from, from this administration. But to your point is how has technology changed over the years? Um, I can't provide to you specific numbers on, on certain components of the data that you spoke of. I certainly have those uh, available, and I'm happy to provide them, but I don't have them at the tip of my tongue. But I will say, you know, if we go through you know, smartphone penetration rates are incredibly uh, increasing on a daily basis. Uh, the old flip phones are on the way out, but there's certainly, there's certainly a, a number of persistent consumers that kill for their, for their flip phones. So uh, smartphones are increasing. We're seeing a, a, a decrease uh, somewhat, and we've seen this in some, some of the polling and some of the surveys, um, a decrease in home internet access as people are getting more smartphones, which is something I've you know, argue that they're, you know, they're relatively interchangeable. Uh, the commission does not believe that and is trying to figure out a, a regime to fund both structures. Um, in terms of internet speeds overall, we're seeing incredible uh, increases in speeds. But that's not uniform across the United States. There are many uh, portions of the United States that do not have high-speed internet, do not have broadband. Uh, and we're working hard. I'm working with my colleagues to try and bring that uh, in, the mo in the most difficult scenarios. We have a number of programs that we operate at the commission to try and resolve those issues. I've been very active on uh, rate of return carrier issues and the price cap carriers and bringing service to the most remote parts uh, of American providing service. We also have to deal with what's known as the remote areas. Those are where there, basically today there is nothing but dial-up or there's no service at all. Um, I think those are the most challenging. We haven't spent a, enough time on them, in my opinion. We've talked about needing to do something, but we haven't done anything. So I'm committed to trying to force uh, action on those issues. So there's a couple. Uh, I, I, your last point was on in terms of, uh, if I heard you correctly, was in terms of uh, data pre uh, cable penetration. Uh, certainly cable penetration or DBS, collectively MVPDs, 
has decreased uh, relative um, to the last couple of years. Some of that is cord cutting. Some of it is people finding other things to do. Spending more time on the internet is, is increasing. So you're finding that broadband, broadband is, is, is increasing in terms of the number of people who seek broadband. The actual contents may be changing um, as, the, as the marketplace uh, develops and as consumer interests and, and, and tastes change. Comparably uh, to, to the world, um, it depends on the country that you're looking at in terms of, you know, we are a much different uh, makeup than, than many other countries. We also have a, a, a different structure in how we make our decisions. Um, if we had a, a king or a, a dictator, we could certainly get broadband to everybody. Um, and we could also take all of your taxes and, and take all of your revenues. Um, and, and help fund that purpose. So we have a much different structure. We try to uh, balance the consumer, uh, consumer needs with how much money we're, you know, we're willing to, um, to take away from consumers, also how much money is being spent uh, by the administration and other forms of this. But to your, to your broader point, I believe that technology continues play an important part in everyday American lives. Not everybody. There's a certain portion that this will never be of interest, whether it's the internet or certain other things. I can think my mother just moved back from a smartphone to a flip phone. Um, so it, it does happen. Um, she's obviously older, uh, and it could be a harder population to, to, to educate and, and make comfortable with technology. But it continues to play a more important role in our everyday lives. Um, we have to be more responsive at the commission. Um, and we have to be more nimble and willing to deal with the problems that we have before us uh, versus dealing with some other issues, in my opinion, that are more politically driven, uh, that take a great deal of our time and resources. If we focused on what really needs to be done for some things that people would like to do because it's politically uh, important or the timely, uh, we would really uh, change the, the, the makeup of, of, of the United States. Uh, gentlemen back. David Walters. Um, there's a recent paper by a um, retired uh, chief economist at the FCC, and the title is that the FCC has become an um, economic-free zone. And he's gone through the like, 40 or 50 years of um, FCC decisions, and he's uh, shown a trend about the decisions not being supported by economic analysis. And uh, I'm wondering, have you observed that trend? And given your points today, how do you rank uh, that um, trend. So I just gave a speech on this uh, two weeks ago. Um, I couldn't agree more uh, with that analysis. I've had a chance to look at a, a couple papers on this, a couple extensive papers on this. The commission, and it goes to, you know, when you're doing shortcuts on Chevron and APA, you're also doing shortcuts, uh, this commission has done, on economic analysis. And so uh, it is prevalent in everything we do. Um, there is no cost, there's very little cost-benefit analysis being done of, of the items that are before us. Um, I will tell you, and I'll give you an example, you know, barely not, you know, most of our items have nothing, have no cost-benefit analysis included. In fact, the only time that a cost-benefit analysis comes up uh, is when it is done for purposes of White House approval of Information Paperwork Reduction Act. But secondly, I would say that there are some, there are some items where cost-benefit analysis is done. And those tend to be, at the commission, those tend to be tied to something uh, involving public safety. And there, you see the most rudimentary uh, arithmetic done. They take the 
the, the supposed benefits of whatever may be claimed to be public safety benefit, and they multiply it by the economic statistical value of a life as determined by the Department of Transportation of 9.5 million per individual. So you have somebody at the commission who guesses how many people would be saved by this public safety uh, decision that we're making. You multiply that by 9.5 million and you get some data. And whatever cost is to, the, um, to an item, whatever the cost that they determine, which is always lower uh, than, you, than real, real math would, would suggest, but it's whatever cost has been determined, no matter what that cost is, there's always enough people uh, times 9.5 million to exceed that level, and so the benefit always exceeds the cost. Um, it, is, it is not cost-benefit analysis, in my opinion. It is ignoring the burdens that, that Congress asked us to do. Um, they, some people have made the argument that independent agencies aren't required uh, to comply with this. But this administration, this, the Obama administration, has asked independent agencies to comply with cost-benefit analysis, and we continue to, uh, to ignore that, that responsibility. So I, I, I've read uh, a number of the papers I've looked at um, this work. I've talked about it myself. I'm hoping that the next commission will be more responsive to this concern. I realize that it may delay a number of items. I get that point. But our job is not necessarily to do things in an expedite, you know, has to be done in a 30-day in a time period. Our job is trying to represent the American people to come up with the best outcome in a time period that's reasonable. And I don't, I don't think shortcuts and process or uh, relating to, uh, to APA and Chevron or on cost-benefit analysis are appropriate. Commissioner, following up on that, have you heard from uh, either your colleagues on the commission or from economists on staff uh, about uh, this, these papers that have recently come out? Uh, I have not heard their, their critique of the papers yet. Um, I'm open to, to hearing what they, their take of it is. The chairman has, has, has you know, represented to, to Congress, for instance, that we do take these into account, that we, we do do cost-benefit analysis, and it is part of our equation. It, it, you, know, you only have to read the items to realize it's not. Um, and I'm, I just, I just you know, wholeheartedly disagree with his approach. So I don't believe we're going to see any, you know, because of these papers, going to see any change of activity um, at the commission. That's why my hope is that the next commission, whatever however the election turns out, however the next chairman is, chairperson, sorry, the chairperson is um, at the commission, whoever it may be, has more commitment uh, to these goals. Our next question is from Howard Buzkirk of Communications Daily, who uh, sent this in online. Do you expect the FCC to approve a new mobility fund or revised data roaming rules in coming months? So I've heard the chairman say that he'd like to do those two items in the coming months. I don't have anything to suspect that we wouldn't do them because the chairman has been very clear that when he announces something, we tend to do it. And if you check through the time period, we both came in on the same day, so we've both been there a little less than three years. We've pretty much you know, checked through the different items that he's wanted to do. I suspect we will. In terms of mobility fund, I've outlined my thoughts on mobility uh, in terms of what we should do, uh, mobility phase two, phase two, mobility fund phase two. Um, hopefully, we'll do it in a thoughtful way and come up with the right outcome uh, for, the, for the American consumer. Uh, it, to me, it's not about finishing it by the end of the year. It's about getting it right. 
Um, and so to, to Howard, I, I, I suspect we're, we're going to probably meet those deadlines because that's the, the chairman uh, gets complete control over the agenda. Um, but we'll just have to see what they look like. Uh, front row. Hi, I'm Ken Fister with Great Plains out of Nebraska. I want to follow up in your comments, Commissioner, on the privacy and security item sure. that is pending. Um, I was kind of taken aback. Maybe I'm just not informed, but if you have a, a few handfuls of people with expertise, paraphrasing what you said in the agency, and kind of, I guess, and it sounds like you're not in favor of the item. My question is, and then a follow-up to that, do you have an order here that's ultimately, if it goes forward, unenforceable and really just paper, so to speak, with a, a lot of smart words on it? And then I, I parallel that with experiences my company and others have had with enforcement matters where orders seem to have methodologies for enforcement on parties that don't comply, and yet it's really difficult to get any movement even following the processes simply because it doesn't appear there's personnel. And then the quick follow-up, do you think the FCC is right-sized expertise-wise or, in fact, has areas where it needs shifts in expertise? There's a lot of items uh, wrapped up in your qu three questions there. Uh, I'll try to, uh, to work through them. In terms of the privacy security item, as I said, this is something before me, so I want to be very careful. I do believe and have stated that we don't have the resources dedicated to make the decisions uh, comprehensively to understand how that interacts with all of uh, the rest of privacy uh, th that operates, um, that governs the United States economy. In terms of um, enforcing uh, those requirements if adopted, I don't have any doubt that, that uh, this commission will enforce uh, whatever it adopts in some form or fashion. It doesn't mean that it's going to be done uniformly or it's going to be done uh, systematically. It, the enforcement, and I've critiqued the problems with our current enforcement process um, before uh, in my time at the commission because it has been more about headlines um, and getting you know big whopping numbers from particular companies than it has been about uh, seeking to remedy a past failure, uh, a signal to those that, that others that they need to, you know, if they have issues, they need to address them or face similar structures, um, and generally correcting the problem. So I, I think those are the, what, what, what sound enforcement looks like, um, and I don't think that's what this, this commission is focused on. It's more on what's the best headline um, and, and what is the big number. So I don't have any doubt that some company will be the uh, guinea pig um, if these rules are adopted in some form or fashion uh, and will found to be um, out of compliance for whatever reason and will be subject to a, a death knell penalty um, that, will, that will probably never be collected but um, will look great in, in the headline. So um, in terms of your last part of your question, do I think the commission needs to right-size its staff? I don't have any say in that matter. Um, that is the, you know, I, I wish I did. I wish it would be, it would, to me, it would make more sense to have more uh, understanding and collaborative process with the other commissioners, but the chairman uh, does, gets under the current precedent and practices, gets uh, the, the sole deciding factor on, on most of those things. I believe that the commission has bulked up in certain places like enforcement along the process that I just mentioned. 
um, and has not backfilled um, people who have left important uh, regulatory areas um, that have been left like Wireline, where some of the privacy issues are coming out of. Um, and so you have small teams of people, very good, honest, hardworking staff, but they're all, you know, they've been asked to do an awful lot in a short amount of time period, um, and they, they don't have any relief coming. Um, and I find that problematic. So if you're looking at our wireline staff, you know, handfuls of people. I know we, you, you and I have talked on, uh, in the record, and you can you know, see um, that, that you care greatly on some of the rate of return issues and the price cap areas and how those things interact. Um, the number of people working on high cost you know, is a couple handfuls. I mean, so when you talk 1,500, you're talking, you know, not that many people working on really important issues. We talked previously about how do you deal with, you know, the broadband numbers in the United States. These are the people that are working on those issues, uh, and there's so few of them. So I, I, not, I would um, want to um, adjust where our people are going, per se, uh, but I don't have any involvement in that right now. Commissioner, you had a long and illustrious career on Capitol Hill. Um, I'm curious what you hear from your friends on Capitol Hill about what the biggest priorities uh, in Congress are on uh, FCC-related issues. Well, I, I believe, and you can see this in the letters that are sent to the commission. You can see this in the statements that are provided at hearings. You can see it in our oversight hearings. I think there's tremendous frustration with this commission and how it operates and also with the outcomes that it makes. Uh, and they, some, some, some of its process, um, I've certainly highlighted a number of process uh, reforms that we could do to improve, um, but some of it is just, uh, it, is the, it is the approach of this commission, and I think it's on both sides. I think, not, not uniform, but I think there are both Republicans and Democrats who disagree with how this commission is operated um, and, and would like to see the next commission operate differently. Um, and I, I hope that that will be the case. So I, I hear that. I think I see that in the, in the letters that I'm sent. Um, that this just hasn't been um, how the commission should function, um, both procedurally and outcome-based, um, to to produce the best out the best um, the best items uh, for the American people. And so I think you see that in terms of appropriations. You see it in the authorizers in Congress. There's just general frustration, the downright disapproval for how the things are being. Uh, addressed by this commission, um, and it and it doesn't have to be that way. There are, you know, not counting myself, there are four very smart people on the commission, um, and they um, there there are ways to have four individuals work together um, to produce a collaborative process that we all can you know that we all can agree on the outcome. It just hasn't been a priority. Let's wait for the microphone. Ariel Roth Hudson Institute. Um, so uh, your 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 remarks fo focused on um, abusive administrative process, um, lack of uh, uh, lack of limits on FCC discretion in the context of the recent Title II decision, and um, I was also wondering if you could touch on um, to what extent the Verizon decision um, might have also been the you know the root of the rot that that decision has been criticized for. Uh, you know, endorsing the virtuous cycle theory, which has given the FCC basically unlimited discretion to 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 regulate the internet economy, and indeed, uh, in um, in bolstering the the open internet order, the FCC had to rely on 
uh, on Section 706 and its forbearance decision, its forbearance decisions, paid prioritization needed to be based in Section 706. So it seems very backwards. Um, uh, and uh, so, uh, what uh, do you have any um, solutions for bridging uh, what comes off as seemingly unbound, unbounded discretion? Um, um, in, uh, in uh, interpreting Section 706 and regulating under yeah. that section. So um, the heart of my uh, speech today, the heart of my comments, is that the court has an important, place, a important role to play. Uh, and the D.C. Circuit hasn't uh, done so. It's provided too much deference to this commission, in my opinion, in both the net neutrality decision. And you highlight, you know, and I referenced in my speech other decisions, and the Verizon one is just as problematic, in my opinion. Others found it not as difficult to, uh, diff difficulty, but I find that to be, you know, both in the transparency, both in and the virtuous cycle uh, that they, they've created, and it, you know, it, it is uh, to me it is limitless um, in terms of the authority they have uh, authorized for this commission uh, to proceed, uh, and that's problematic. What that, you know, the solution to that is it will only come in two places: one, Supreme Court uh, willing to take uh, net neutrality case uh, on multiple layers, multiple levels. Or the Congress to uh, to address this statutorily, and that gets to to, to Commissioner First Scott Ross' uh, question earlier. How does how does what do I what do I hear and and, and see from the Congress? I believe that Congress has uh, the desire to um, pass legislation affecting uh, the FCC and communications policy has increased. Some of that's in response to the Commission, but some of it's in response to the courts. Um, and so I, I think that you're going to see more activity in the next Congress, no matter how the Congress shakes out, um, and more interest, because I think it's bipartisan, uh, as I mentioned before. Um, and so I think that that's, that's the solution, in my opinion. Either this court, the D.C. Circuit, either has to um, become more stringent in terms of how it, 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 you know, the laws and precedent that it applies on the FCC, or a higher power being either uh, the Supreme Court, our Congress needs to step in uh, and address that. But I do think that it has, and, and there's two cases, but there's multiple money cases that go in go into that 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 bucket. Um, it has provided the com the commission um, excessive deference, um, unnecessary, um, and and ceded too much ground uh, to the commission uh, that that makes the statute uh, uh, to me it, it makes the statute a mockery. Um, to the words that were on the paper, uh, the, the conversations that many of which Commissioner Fershgar Roth and I, you know, sat diligently working on behalf of uh, members of Congress uh, to help write, um, to see now that it, it, it play out where it is now is, is extremely difficult. 706 is a great example. I've talked at length many a time in terms of my thoughts on where 706 is, where it's been. And what it's and now it's been turned into, um, and it's just so disheartening. It's caused me to go back and and and, and you know I've been very cautious in providing uh, advice to the Congress unless asked. But I have been asked and and, and you know and publicly provided my comments um, on what I thought the, the Congress needs to do, and that means to you know address things that we failed to do. Uh, we did not believe that a commission would go certain directions, and I firmly believe that. You know, in any provision that Congress writes these days, it has to add the provision. We do not want you to do X, Y, and Z. You have to plan backwards uh, with this with this commission, uh, and, and because of what it, how it has interpreted the statute, how the courts have given too much deference uh, to to the commission. Yeah, commissioner, is 
Do you think any member of Congress in 1996 thought that Section 706 was a blanket uh, invitation to regulate? No, absolutely not. And in fact, not only that, because I've, I've outlined, I think I gave 13 reasons why not. But well, I'll give you just one. Uh, and that is that, you know, to believe that Tom Bliley would sign off on, that, on, on such a provision that basically said that the commission can regulate the internet in any form or fashion, because that's, that's what the virtuous circle cycle does get you, right? It, it is that you can do anything you want. You can just make an argument that it feeds the other. Um, to believe that, cycle. It's not virtuous. But. Yeah. But to believe that he would sign off on that is, is just incredible. If, if you, and I, you have to also look at the context. We, you know, the change in Congress occurred in 1994. 1995, we had a new Congress. The 104th Congress comes in with a much different approach than the previous Congress. And right-sizes a number of work that the previous Congress had done on communications policy, puts its own stamp on a number of items, adds some things. Um, and, and, and does so, though, if you look at the entire Congress and you look at the makeup and you look at what they were trying to do at the time, to believe that they would have just given away the, 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 the complete authority over the internet to the commission to do whatever it wants, whenever it wants, is, it's laughable. It's, it's just, it's, it, it makes you want to cry. It makes me want to cry. Um, it makes me go back to, the, to you know, provide advice, as I said, on how not to do things um, and, and to be very clear in the statute what you expect. Uh, and, and, and outline exactly what, um, what, not you, what authority you're not providing um, to, the con to the commission. I'll tell you, maybe a, a better staffer, uh, you know, a number of things, number of court cases over the years, maybe a better staffer when I went to the Senate because I started adding exactly what I wanted um, on behalf of members and made it clear why we needed to add certain things. Um, and it, it made the, the, the bills that moved at the time much uh, stronger. We'll see if that continues. Commissioner, you... Okay, maybe one last question, then I'm going to wrap it up. Gentleman right here. Hi, my name is Michael Johnson. Um, I was wondering what um, the Department of Commerce is going to turn over ICANN to an international kind of self-governing organization. What effect, if any, does that have on uh, your organization? Ah, so the FCC doesn't have a role in that equation, um, and it's my understanding based on uh, the timing of the year that that may have already occurred. Um, I've raised com deep concerns, grave concerns with, with the transfer. And it's not because I'm against the multi-stakeholder uh, structure. I actually believe that's the best uh, mechanism to uh, address uh, internet issues. It's one that has worked for many years. And so I support the goals of, of what was attend intended by, the, by, by the, the change. I'm not sure, though, that what is being um, presented as the solution had enough time and enough protections for internet users going forward. And the role, the most concern I have is that actual governments will have a greater hand um, in the control and decision making of the future ICANN. And that has a dramatic impact in terms of the future of the internet. Whether I'm right or wrong will be proven by time. Um, but I would argue that the structure that's been outlined provides an opportunity for government to have a greater hand in that. And it's not going to be the benevolent governments of the world. It's going to be those countries that we know want to restrict government activity. So to the first part of your question, the commission has no role. Um, but to the, the bigger uh, policy issue, um, I have deep concerns on where we've gone. And it is, it is where it is. 
Uh, Commissioner O'Reilly, you've been incredibly generous with your time and, and even more generous in sharing your, your thoughts. Uh, thank you so much. Thank you so much.